to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 18 through 29. One of our congregational goals this year is to reemphasize daily Bible reading. So about once a month, I'm delivering a sermon from our location in the schedule many of us use for daily Bible reading. And I'm ready with another of those efforts as Dora was tonight in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Darrell has given me a great introduction, and I'm going to continue with us in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, before we read this, I need to supply some background and context, for without that, the study will not have as much value. In 2 Samuel, there is this wonderful prophecy God gave to and about David with far-reaching implications, not only with regard to Solomon, but pointing to the Messiah and the kingdom of Christ. And it's about rulership. It is about a reign. And it was essentially this. God would establish the dynasty of David forever. Sometimes this is called the throne covenant. And it means that a superior descendant of David would eventually rule God's people. Now take that in and then we'll read about it and you'll see it on the page. The throne covenant, this promise that God made to David was that the dynasty of David would be established forever in this sense a superior descendant of David would rule over God's people. Now, we know that that superior descendant is Jesus Christ, who rules over God's people today. So, it wasn't like David was just discarded. He was honored and, in a real sense, remembered by God. I'm going to read again in 2 Samuel 7, Verses 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. Now, certainly part of that in the immediacy of it pertains to Solomon. But then there's another element of it that goes all the way and reaches to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And we observe that particularly in verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the throne covenant God gave to David. We can only imagine the emotional impact of this promise that God made to David that David's throne would be occupied not just by Solomon, but by eventually a superior divine descendant, Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> somebody will say, well, how do you get that out of 2 Samuel 7? Well, you don't get it just in 2 Samuel 7. When the Apostle Peter preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost, I want you to listen to part of what Peter said. I'm in Acts 2 now, 
verses 29 through 33. Brothers, remember now this is Peter on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being exalted therefore by the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So, Peter confirms that the throne covenant that God made to David extended beyond Solomon all the way to Jesus Christ, who would be the superior descendant, who would rule on the throne in heaven over God's people forever. Now, how do you think David responded to all of that? We're going to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 now, and we're going to read how David responded to this throne covenant. We're going to continue at verse 18 in 2 Samuel 7. Then King David went in and sat down before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeem for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you establish for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant, and concerning your house, and do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, 
and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. I want to start here. Please observe how David's prayer begins. And there are three words I want to highlight that you will discover as soon as you begin reading in 2 Samuel seven eighteen. David said, who am I? Who am I? I take this to be one of the most vivid expressions of humility you will find anywhere in the Bible. Who am I? See, men often suffer with an exaggerated self-image that reflects arrogance. Indeed, we may sometimes be tempted to overestimate ourselves and at the same time underestimate the Almighty God who made us and with whom we must deal. Pride stands in the way of reverence for God and obedience to Christ. These words, therefore, ought to be our words. Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And in addition to humility that emerges in David's prayer, this shows, I think, David's understanding of God's grace. Indeed, where there is genuine humility, there will be an understanding of God's grace. David knew he didn't deserve to be remembered this way. He knew he had done nothing to deserve to earn or merit this promise, this treasured connection with a superior descendant, a divine descendant, the coming Messiah. I think at the time David offered this prayer, he had what we need, a clear understanding that it's not about me, not about how great I am, not my achievements and what I deserve because I'm so great. Banish such thinking. There is a creator. He had a plan he has given for us to receive and live by. When we receive what God offers and live by his plan, <clears throat> it never puts us in a position to boast or to brag. Rather, it causes us to say with great humility, Who am I? That God would apply His wisdom, His energy, and His compassion to save a sinner and then exalt His people. And these perspectives and beliefs ought to be fundamental not only to our concept of ourselves in God, but to our praying. Who am I? God is giving me what I don't deserve. It is not about me and my place in the universe and my worth. It is about Him. It's about Him who made us 
and Him who died for us and who loves us. Without these understandings I'm talking about that David reflects here, prayer is a collection of words, ritualistically spoken or thought, but without humility. Look at verse 22. After David said, Who am I? He said to God, You are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. So at this particular time, David had a very concept of who he was alongside who God is. Matthew Henry put it this way. David at this point had very low thoughts of himself and his own merit but very high thoughts of the glory and the grace of God. This conviction of humility with this understanding of God's grace, with this conviction that we do not earn such consideration, it makes prayer valuable. That perspective that honors God while holding self-image in a constrained view, makes prayer valuable. I want us now to observe two phrases in David's prayer about instruction for mankind. I see in verse 19 and verse 28 that David acknowledged something all the servants of God knew very well that God has given instruction to govern us. In verse 19, instruction for mankind. Accompany that with verse 28, your words are true. Now, connect that in with the humility and the prayer we were talking about. Prayer, you see, is part of our total response to God. Prayer is part of one's total response to God. It is vital for each of us to learn not just how to pray, but how to follow God's instructions for mankind. In fact, prayer will suffer a loss in value to the extent that we ignore God's instructions for mankind. Obedience to God... And prayer to God are companions. Two parts of our total response to God that God expects, that pleases Him. Let me ask to take this to another level here. Do you ever hear anyone say something like, well, let's obey God together? I'm going to make a point of this. Do you ever hear anybody say, well, let's obey God together? We very often hear people say, I'll pray for you and you pray for me and let's pray together. Is it possible prayer gets more attention than obedience in our lives? And then do we need to make an adjustment there so that we are not just people who pray, we are people who obey. We connect those things together. We have in the scripture unchanging absolute truth to live by. We have what David calls instruction 
for mankind. That needs to be connected with everything we were talking about concerning humility and a proper view of self and God in prayer. Prayer and obedience need to move together toward God. Our close fellowship with God means we not only communicate with Him, we are active learning what He has communicated to us and then active in applying what He has communicated to us. Prayer and obedience need to move together. I wanted to talk about verse 20 a few minutes. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Mark this down in your mind and don't let this slip away. There is nothing that you know about yourself that God doesn't know about you. There's nothing that you know about yourself that God doesn't know about you. In fact, we can, we can extend that. And we can extend it with a level of certainty because of this statement David makes and many others like it. God knows you and He knows me perfectly. It is certain, therefore, that He knows more about us than we do. That is to say, there are things about us that either we've not discovered or we've not admitted or we've not owned up to yet. He knows them very well. That should cause honest self-examination on a consistent basis. We may not search our hearts well. God searches our hearts and our lives perfectly. Absolutely perfectly. And when we pray, we ought to be aware of that with David. David said, God knows his servants, everything about us, thoughts, secret sins, attitudes, words, our responses to people, good or bad, everything. Hebrews 4.13 testifies to each of us in these words, no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This means as regards prayer, even if God doesn't hear from you in a while, that doesn't limit his knowledge of you. So if I go six months and I say nothing to God in prayer, that doesn't mean God is saying, well, haven't heard from Warren, I wonder what's going on. Now, God doesn't wonder what's going on. Even if God doesn't hear from me in a while, that doesn't limit his knowledge of me. So that should cause us to enter into prayer on a more regular basis and to accompany prayer with obedience and self-examination, knowing that we are addressing the sovereign creator who knows everything there is to know about who we are, what we think, what we do, how we respond. David's prayer is full of words of devout expression toward God. Verse 27, he says something I wanted to call attention to. 
He said, therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. I want us to think about that expression, that idea of finding courage to pray. This finding, finding courage to pray, is not like you stumble onto something. You find something you were not expecting to find. This finding is that which comes after seeking and learning and believing. Finding courage to pray means you were solidly convinced of God's existence. You have discovered in Scripture His plan to save us through Christ. You have learned that faith in Christ must be active to receive what God offers. You have activated that faith. You're growing in that faith. You're living by that faith. You're nourished in that faith. And when you encounter hardships and obstacles and temptations, you know that that faith is your defense. And while it is very hard sometimes, and the pressure is intense and painful, and you are distracted, based on that development of faith in your life, you find courage to speak to God about your life consistently. And you speak to Him about His promises. And you glorify Him for those. His provisions for you. Seeking to thank Him and praise Him and request His help. It's interesting to me, in verse 18, that David sat before the Lord to pray. We think of standing or kneeling. David sat before the Lord to pray. Could that be related to this courage that he had in praying? This boldness that he had to go before God with his thoughts, his gratitude and his praise. See, sitting was in those ancient times an attitude of humility, suggesting that the worshiper knew his or her place of rest before God. It was the posture of the ancient Egyptians before their shrines, knowing they could relax there, thinking they were safe and at rest. David came in this manner before the Lord in humility and rest, finding courage to pray. Now, Let's make this final connection. Do you remember the context of David's prayer that we've looked at in 2 Samuel 7? Remember that God had said to David that he would establish his throne. That's the throne covenant we talked about in the beginning. In that Christ would reign over God's people. Christ was the superior descendant. Solomon was the immediate descendant. Christ was the ultimate superior descendant who would reign on the throne over God's people. Now, we have no such promise this specific. I cannot read anywhere in the Bible about the throne of Warren, nor can any of you find such a reference. But God has made abundant and exceedingly great promises to us that enable us to find courage to pray. 
I want to conclude by simply listing some of the promises that pertain to us. We don't have a throne promise in the sense that David did. But we have all these marvelous promises of God's presence. I will never leave thee. God's protection. I am thy shield. God's power. I will strengthen thee. God's provision. I will help thee. God's leading. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them. John 10, 4. God's purposes. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace, not of evil. In Jeremiah 20 and verse 11. God's rest. Come unto me, Jesus said. All ye that labor and are heavy laden. God's wise plan. All things work together for good. God's cleansing. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's goodness, no good thing will he withhold from them that work uprightly. God's faithfulness, the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. God's guidance, the meek will he guide. God's wise plan that I had mentioned earlier, all things work together to good for them that love God. Do you see? We have no throne covenant like David. But we have all these promises. And more through Jesus Christ. To enable us to find the courage to pray. And the song of our heart should be as in verse 22. God is great. <clears throat> there is none like him. Verse 28, his words are true. Verse 30, uh, 27, therefore your servant has found courage to pray. I hope all of this and all the other prayers we read about in our daily Bible reading help us with humility, accompanied by obedience, and such confidence in God through Jesus Christ that we find courage to pray. Let's be standing as we sing.